Well, today we return to 1 Samuel, and specifically chapter 9, verses 15 through 27. Would you turn there with me, and let's stand as we honor the fact that this is the Lord's Word, inspired, authoritative, commanding us to respond. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 27. Now the day before Saul came... The Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, Tell me, where's the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and you will tell all that is in your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind upon them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite? From the least of the tribes of Israel, and it is not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg of what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for how it instructs us. Thank you that it introduces us to people that are like us. Like us before we were saved, like us after we were saved, like us in the struggles that we face, Lord, we see ourselves in in many of these characters throughout the scriptures. And so, Lord, I pray that we will look at what we find in Saul and ask, are we finding this in ourselves? And Lord, if we are, that we would turn to you for mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, chapter 9 introduces us to Saul, and two weeks ago in chapter 10, we watched Samuel in front of the nation of Israel proclaim Saul as king. But here is where we first meet this young man who's searching for his father's donkeys, and Saul seems, he seems like an obedient son. In verse 5, we read how after searching for several days that he grows concerned that his father 
will begin worrying about his welfare. And then in verse 17, we see how his life takes a turn. And read that verse again with me in 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. And then skip down to the, first, the last half of verse 20 where Samuel says, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And we see how Saul answers He says, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Right? So it seems like a humble response. Is not my clan the humblest of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why are you speaking to me this way? And then we go to verse 20 in the next chapter. Look at that real quick in chapter 10, where it says, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. The clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And so they inquired again to the Lord, Is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. One of my favorite favorite verses of the Old Testament. Behold, he's hiding um, you know, sometimes when we read baggage, we think he's hiding in a suitcase. No, he's hiding in the equipment of whatever they had brought together there. And, you know, when we looked at chapter 10 last, we skipped that particular event. But you may remember what was taking place in Israel's history. There was, there was change occurring. The people were moving from an era of judges in which God ruled the nation through men like Samuel and into an era of royalty, and Saul was Israel's first king. And interestingly, Saul does not seek the position of king. In fact, the first time that Saul told him that he was going to be Israel's king, Saul says, I don't want that responsibility. Why are you talking to me? And when Samuel arrives to anoint Saul, he can't find him because Saul has hidden himself in the midst of the baggage, the equipment, and and so Samuel has to ask the Lord where he's to be found. And when we read those sections, I think our natural tendency is to look at Saul and say, what a tragedy. An innocent, good man fell because he couldn't handle the pressures of being king. And that's certainly how Hollywood would portray Saul. But we must remember that the Bible says that man's heart is incurably wicked from birth, that depravity does not always express itself in full measure until later in life. Much like a tree that spends years growing before the fruit is is fully visible. Adolf Hitler, for example, regarded to be, I think, unanimously as one of the most visibly evil men in human history as a child, wanted to be a priest. He was a student at the local Catholic school and sang in the choir. He then wanted to be an artist and was decorated as a veteran of World War I. Hitler seemed like a promising young man. But the heart was not regenerate. Rather, it was depraved and dark and it really just needed the right circumstances and the right soil in which to grow, if you will, and display the fruit of that depravity. And the same is true of Saul. When he became king and was successful in his first campaign against the Philistines, when the, when the people began to shout his praises and suddenly he was the center of attention in Israel, well, 
guess what happened? Saul grew to like being king. And the man who had hidden himself in the baggage now is the man setting up monuments to himself in the midst of battlefields. Did Saul change? Did he become corrupted by the position of authority? No, his circumstances certainly changed, but they merely encouraged what was already present in his heart and mind and soul. Look at this passage from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Between chapters 10 and and 15, Saul was victorious in several battles. And, And here in this passage, several years later, God commands him to destroy the Amalekites. And we read, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now let me explain what's, what's going on here in this passage. In Exodus 17, we read how the people of Israel, shortly after they had gone across the Red Sea, wandered in the wilderness and were attacked by the Amalekites. It was a fierce battle. And you may remember the detail about that battle of Moses, who was told, as long as you hold up your staff, Israel will be victorious. And when his arms grew tired, the Amalekites would be victorious. And so the people actually end up putting rocks beneath his arms so that they can hold the staff up. And Israel wins the battle. Well, what we don't learn from Exodus 17 is an important detail that's revealed in Deuteronomy 25 when Moses is kind of summarizing what the history of the people and their exodus He reminds the people, you remember how the Amalekites, when they attacked us, they didn't do what a normal, courageous army would do. Instead, they ambushed us from behind. They killed the weak and the sick and the elderly and the young. It was brutal. It was a cowardly act by the Amalekites and it was meant to demoralize the nation. And that's why God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 25, remember what the Amalekites did. And when you settle in the land, you are to take vengeance and destroy that nation. And so that's the context of 1 Samuel 15. God is finally telling Israel, now is the time of which I told you, once you settle in the land, do this. Bring my vengeance upon the Amalekites. So Saul takes those words from Samuel. He only partially obeys. He wins the battle, but he brings back some of the the victory spoils and spares the Amalekite king's life. And when Samuel comes looking for Saul and asks him why he disobeyed God's command, Saul responds with a lie. Again, a kind of a famous story in, in 1 Samuel. Now we read it in verse 13. He says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then we look at verse 12 and notice that one of Saul's actions following the victory was to put up a monument, not to God, but to himself. That's just a little bit of an aside. 
And then we look at verse 14. When Saul told Samuel that he had obeyed God's commandments, Samuel replies to him, What then is that bleeding of sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. And it's a classic moment. Samuel says, Saul, I did everything that you said. Everything that the Lord commanded. And at that very moment that he gives that response, the sheep start bleeding. And it's like a child, you know, the crumbs of the chocolate chip cookie start crumbling, you know, crumbling down and coming out of the mouth with the chocolate on the fingers. He's been caught in the action. And then here's what I really want you to see, though. It's right there in verse 15. Saul says, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And you see the blame shifting. They, the soldiers, brought them back. I didn't do that. They are to be sacrificed to your God, not my God. And if that second part doesn't leap out at you from the passage, look at the last half of verse 21 up there. But the people took of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then he says the same thing again in verse 30. Your God. Three times in this very significant Old Testament passage, Saul has the opportunity to identify himself with God. But he doesn't. He keeps referring to the Lord as Samuel's God. And my immediate response is to ask, well, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you referring to Samuel's God as your God and not as my God? Well, then I was thinking, you know, I know maybe a little, when new families begin attending CVP, for example, I can often tell how they're progressing in their relationship with the church because in the first weeks and months, families, when speaking with me, refer to CVP as your church, right? We're enjoying your church, and the family begins to feel a bigger part of things and and decides to root themselves here, and your church becomes the church. And finally, there's a sense of shared ownership, and I'll hear the phrase, our church, or my church, start coming from their words. And Saul's reference to God as your God strikes me as a clue that Saul is not a regenerate believer. He is not aligning himself with the same values and priorities as Samuel, who follows after the Lord. His actions were already evidence of this, but now his words add to the case against him. One author I read compared Saul to Willie Loman. Anyone know that name, Willie Loman? He's the main character in Arthur Miller's play titled Death of a Salesman. And so for some of you older people here uh, know Dustin Hoffman was in a movie, Death of a Salesman, in the 1980s. So a lot of you weren't born yet, but that's uh, Death of a Salesman. It's a play in which Loman, the main character, pretends to be a wealthy salesman, but he really isn't. 
He's certainly a salesman, but he's poor, he's impoverished. He pretends to have all the big connections in town, all the power that he longs for, but he doesn't have any of that. His children grow up thinking him powerful and connected and rich, and only his wife knows that it's a lie because she sees the bills. And at one point, Loman's son finds him in an embarrassing situation and discovers the truth about his father. And it starts this whole breakdown of, of relationships crumbling. And this play, it's, it's a dark one. And it's meant to portray the difficult life of a, of a disillusioned salesman. But it doesn't have to be a salesman. Anyone who pretends, fakes to be someone that they aren't right, in order to hide the truth. And it even ends darker as he dies in an automobile accident. And the final words of the play are spoken by his son who says, you know, Mom, what the problem was with Dad. The problem was Dad really never knew who he was. So as dark as that is, in thinking through why, why is the author, besides wanting to show that he's literate to something that a lot of people don't even think about anymore, why did he choose Willie Loman, this character, and compare him to Saul? And I think the reason why is you can see Saul's tragedy is the same thing. He's a pretender. He pretends to serve God. He pretends to have the best interests of Israel at heart, but in truth, it is always his own advancement, his own reputation, his own glory that he is interested in. And he becomes more and more rebellious against God, and he keeps losing more and more control over his situation. He is a man fighting for praise, adulation of the people, pretending to be king, while inside he is a seething mass of self-worship, of anger, and of jealousy, all the while having to grudgingly submit to Samuel and to Samuel's God. And when you understand that about Saul, it makes greater sense of the things that we see in Saul's life. Particularly the jealous rage that drives Saul to endless pursuit of David. People praise Paul, Saul, but, but they praise David more. David has everything that Saul wants, including the favor of God, but Saul is unwilling to submit himself to the Lord and be obedient. I'm reminded, aren't you, of the conversation between God and Cain? That's really, you know, let's not go to Willie alone, let's go to Cain. Because I see in Saul kind of a later version of Cain. Cain angry that God has accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his own. And so God asks him, why are you angry? Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, if you are just obedient, will not you be accepted? And if you don't do well, then sin is lying at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. How many of you are struggling, giving everything you can for self-control and control of the circumstances of your life, but you're not listening to what the Lord is saying here? 
if you would but submit, God says. Why is your countenance angry? Because that's, that's often when we are lacking control of our situation, of ourselves, of our circumstances, the natural first place to go is anger. Just like Saul or jealousy or any of these strong, emo- dark emotional responses. And God says, why is your countenance like that? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Which doesn't mean if you just perform all the good works and save yourself. What it means is if you will acknowledge who I am and your dependence upon me and your identity in me, will you not be accepted? And the warning is is the thing to listen to. It's not just, well, then I'm just going to continue for a while and then eventually I'll submit. No, God says... Beware, because if you do not, sin is lying at the door. It is like a lion waiting to tear you apart, to devour you. In other words, you will only get less self-control. You'll only be less in control of your circumstances. We see it in the life of Saul. Saul measures success by the world's standards. He's big, he's tall. He's strong. His subjects serve him. He wins battles. Isn't that enough, Lord? But God accepts David's offering and not Saul's. And as a result, his countenance falls. He finds himself not moved to obedience. He finds himself, I'm going to get rid of the competition. Just like Cain. And sin has a way of slowly eroding away at us so that we eventually arrive at the point that we no longer recognize ourselves. And just as the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifies us over the course of our Christian lives and conforms us more and more to the image of Christ, so does the work of sin corrupt us over the course of a fallen life. Wrapping us into ever greater darkness, conforming us even more into the image of the devil. And so what I see in Saul is the picture of fallen man. People who seem, you know, before circumstance, before the heart has really begun propelling and with inertia like that snowball that, that goes rolling down the hill and, and gathers mass and speed, starts out seemingly innocent. I'll put that in quotes. But, you know, a young man with good aspirations and seemingly obedient, just worse and worse and worse and worse. I read an article this week from Mark Barnes who quotes, what the Minnesota Crime Commission once said about the reality of the human heart. Listen, this is a state crime commission. writes this. Everybody starts life as a little savage. Completely selfish and self-centered, wanting what he wants, when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny him these once and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty and has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children are born delinquent and if permitted in their self-impulsive actions to satisfy each one of them 
and they would all develop into thieves and murderers. That was bold. Of course, that was 1926. And a crime commission established by any of our states today probably wouldn't say those words. But somewhere along the way, American society became convinced that if we only just educate our children, they will be all right. They'll become productive contributors to society. But D.L. Moody also said it well. If a man is stealing nuts and bolts from a railroad track and you want to change him, well, we send him to college. And now at the end of his education, he'll steal the whole railroad track. <laughs> All education does is make us more sophisticated in our duplicity in the schemes of the human heart. He also said that a long time ago. If the heart is corrupt when it's born, and if knowledge alone does not change us, what then is needed? Solomon says simply in the Proverbs, and perhaps you remember what he said, he says, My son, cries wisdom, give me your heart. Wisdom, Christ, demands our hearts. That's what Samuel says to Saul. That's what God said to Cain. Look at verses 22 to 23 of chapter 15. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Ah, we see another thing that happens in the life of the fallen man. We already saw the simple answer that God communicates, and then Samuel tells to Saul, does to obey is better than all of these other things. That's what God wants from us. And when we refuse to do that, we get, as I said, we lose more and more control of ourselves and our circumstances. But then this final stage is that God rejects. Are you sorry for and broken by your sin? Or are you sorry that you got caught and are facing the consequences. For every one of our children, that has been a question Wendy and I have asked at some point, sometimes multiple points along the way. Are you broken over sin, or are you sorry that you got caught? Saul was convicted by sin when he was caught by Samuel. And Samuel told him, Saul, it really is simple. The Lord desires your heart. And your rebellion is not just incomplete obedience. It's as bad as the sin of witchcraft, is what Samuel says. Which is a fitting statement for us to transition to the end of Saul's story in chapter 28. Because here we find that Saul indeed goes as far as the sin of witchcraft in attempting to solve his problems. For in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, we read, Now Samuel had died, 
And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw that the army of the Philistines was there, he was afraid. His heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to the servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is one at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Well, you know surely what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Wow, how do we get here? It's tragic, isn't it? Saul falling ever farther into sin, still though as a like a young boy reaching out for Samuel who solved the problems for him, who gave him the answers that he needed. In the span of 18 chapters, Saul is now seeking the help of a witch, an act that would have been punishable by death or exile. He is a pathetic man. In this moment, he's desperate for direction, tormented by fear. Driven by jealousy, he is, as I said, a picture of fallen man. And he is what we would be outside of the grace and mercy of God. And it is now the end of Saul's life. The Philistines are massing again, preparing for invasion. And Saul has tried every avenue he knows for direction. He's talked to the priests. He has sought Wisdom from them, but the Lord is silent because as Samuel had said, the Lord has removed himself from you. God will not strive with man forever. That's what the Bible says. And yet Saul proves the truth of Romans 1 and 2, showing us that in every human heart, God continues to testify through his law. All of creation proclaims that there is a true God, and Saul cannot forget that, even though God has stopped listening to his prayers, even though God has removed his favor from him, even in the midst of hard-hearted rebellion, Saul knows that God is still on his throne in heaven, and so he seeks some word from him through Samuel, something to help him in his out-of-control situation. But still, Saul will ultimately not submit. And Samuel is dead. And so in desperation, Saul turns to witchcraft, to a woman that should not have still been living, but somehow had managed to survive. And rather than remove her from the land, Saul seeks her help, asks her to raise the spirit of Samuel from the grave. 
Just as a note, the village of Endor was eight miles north of where Saul and the Israelites were set up for battle on the other side of the Philistines. It took quite a bit of effort for Saul to find this woman and get to her. And then we read what happened, starting in verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see a a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? She said, An old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now many people in looking at this particular set of verses focus on the occult. They focus on man's fascination with supernatural knowledge, but I don't think that's the primary issue here. This is yet another example of Saul placing his own needs, fears, and jealousies above God's commands. God had clearly said in his word in Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. But Saul does not care because his real priority is not obedience to God, but his own safety. He's facing the Philistines and he's afraid. And the result is Samuel or an apparition that looks like Samuel that appears. Commentators divide it over which one. I would suggest to you that this is indeed Samuel for three reasons. One, there's nothing in the chapter that indicates that that it's anyone or anything other than Samuel. Second, the witch here is surprised by what she sees. Maybe you noticed that when you read the passage. This woman, while she was doing whatever she would ordinarily do when people ask her to consult the dead, is actually surprised when she sees the spirit. The appearance is not what is expected. Last, we see that the words are the very words of Samuel and that they come true in the next chapters. But do know that when I say that I believe that this is likely Samuel who has appeared, I'm not saying that I believe that there are people who can call any dead person whenever they wish, but rather by a great act of God, Samuel addresses Saul. And we see Samuel's words. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress. (laughs) We could just emphasize those words. I am in great distress. It's worth doing everything that God has told me not to do. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned himself away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams, and so I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. I don't know what to do. Right? It's like a, a boy, a little boy. Tell me what to do, Samuel. And Samuel says, Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you to become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. He's done exactly what he said. 
For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And those are hard words. The Lord had become Saul's enemy. And Samuel points him back to that incident we read in chapter 15. And the punishment for that disobedience was death. It just didn't happen right away. And because Saul was the king and represented the people, the people would also suffer with him. They would lose this battle coming up and Saul's own sons would die with him. That is what God said through Samuel. And friends, here's what I want you to learn from God's word today. If your heart has not been regenerated by the grace of God, if you have not submitted yourself in obedience to Christ and acknowledged him as king, if you are still pursuing your own agendas and priorities and paying lip service to God while you try to gain control of your life and your situation, if you think that your mere presence at worship or ownership of a Bible or profession to be a Christian will save you, then learn from Saul. God is an enemy to those who are in rebellion against him. And there will come a day when he will no longer strive with you and judgment is at hand. But I don't want you to lack hope. In fact, you can see hope in those very verses. God says through Samuel, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, David. God's act of judgment against Saul is at the same time an act of mercy for his people. Saul was not the final chapter for Israel. Instead, God raises up David and David will do what Saul failed to do. In chapters 27 and 30, David fights against the Amalekites and destroys them. One of the things that causes many people to question Christianity and and challenge the faith is the fact that there is so much injustice in this world that our society just seems to be spinning out of control. Crimes committed against the weak and the oppressed, the helpless that are never avenged, tyrannical rulers plunging their nations, states, and more into debt and away from God's principles. There have been Nazi camps, there have been gulags, killing fields, a hundred different tragedies like Kuwait or Rwanda or Afghanistan and more, and there are millions of orphans, millions of aborted children. So how can there be a God, people say, when all of that's happening? The answer to that question is Jesus Christ. First, that he would save people out of their sin. And second, that when he comes again, he will not come with humility and gentleness of his first coming. He will come as a mighty warrior to restore what is right. And that's when God raised up David. And David restored what was right. And was faithful to God. He foreshadowed for us the victory of God over his enemies. 
And I hope that's good news for you today. Don't be like Saul, who as we read in verse 20, when he heard God's judgment, fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. Don't be like Saul, just fearfully trembling, waiting for God's judgment. Instead, may it be that you turn in faith, that simple faith, to the Lord and know that you can rejoice that Christ is king and will one day avenge his enemies and restore what is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lesson of Saul. When we think about his life, we recognize our own sin patterns in Saul, whether it was before we were saved or sometimes where we struggle in sowing to the flesh, we we see some of the things of Saul in our own lives. But thankfully, as true believers, Lord, for those of us who have been called by your Spirit, that is not a comfortable situation. Lord, help us to learn this lesson that the answer is not to turn to trying to control our circumstances through anger and jealousy. It is not to run from you or or simply pay lip service to your kingdom in order to gain control and favor, but Lord, it is to recognize that We're helpless without you. Help us to turn from our sin and then help us to have the confidence, I pray, that through Jesus, you will deal with the injustices of the Amalekites and the Philistines and the many more. And you will address what has happened in our own society today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.